Could you please open your Bible to Romans chapter 12? And uh, our text we'll be considering is from verse 9 to verse 16. Now, someone once wrote, uh, to dwell above with saints in love, that will indeed be glory. But to dwell below with saints, we know, well, that's a different story. You know, the Christian life is meant to be a corporate life. We're meant to be on this journey of life together. In navigating the hills and valleys hand in hand, uh, invested and involved in each other's life, a yeah, loving commitment and concern for one another. You know, as a church, it's God's intention for us to be like a family, which means this demands more than a Sunday commitment. Okay, it includes Sunday, but it needs to be more. We need to be thinking about each other, reaching out to each other, spending time with each other throughout the week. This is what church life is meant to be like. It's not merely meeting together on Sunday for a couple of hours. It's doing life together. And I'm not sure what you think, but I believe as a church, we have room to grow and improve in this area. Now, thankfully, it isn't extinct in our church. It's not like the dinosaurs. Okay, it definitely exists, which is wonderful, but we can grow and we can improve. And Romans chapter 12 shows us how to do it. It contains rapid fire exhortations. So it's like a machine gun. But understand, these are not haphazard. Okay, these are not random. No doubt they were confronting particular issues in the church at Rome. But these short and sharp instructions from verse 9 to 16, they're connected by the theme of living life together. Okay, this is how we are to treat each other as believers in general, but there's a particular focus, a particular emphasis in the local church. So this reveals how we are to do life together as a church. That's a big idea of this text. Okay, you'll notice one another is mentioned twice in verse 10. It's mentioned again in verse 16. Verse 13 says, the saints. Okay, this is referring to the church. This is the theme that unites this long list of instructions. It's like a recipe that produces a healthy church. Now, before we consider the particular ingredients in the recipe, we need to remember what has come before us. All of these practical elements flow out of the gospel. Okay, we can't forget that. Remember the word therefore in verse 1. Okay, in light of all the gospel truth that we considered in the first 11 chapters, how should we respond? Well, we respond by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's our commitments. Furthermore, we're not conformed to this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. But what does this look like? Well, this is unpacked in the verses before us. We have a portrait of a church life that is good, acceptable, and perfect in God's sight. Okay, this is the type of church life that the gospel produces. Now, one more point before we consider the recipe. As we work through these varying ingredients, you ought to realize that you fall short. Okay, if this doesn't convict you in some way, spiritually, you're very out of tune. 
Okay, but this is the key point. Perfection isn't possible. Only Jesus can do this perfectly. But what we need is for each of these ingredients to be evident and for them to be increasing. Okay, if you picture a graph of an investment that you have made, you want your investment to be tracking upwards. Sure, there will be you know, dips here and there, hopefully not too big a dip for your sake. But you want the general direction of the investment to be tracking up. And this is what we want with these qualities, growth and progress. Sure, there'll be the odd dip where we struggle, where we fail, but the general direction needs to be upward. Okay, that's what we're striving for. So with that in mind, let's begin to consider the ingredients required to help us live our lives together as Jesus intends. Okay, that the end product, okay, this is what will be produced when all of the ingredients are mixed together and cooked is love. Okay, verse 9, this is key. Let love and then everything that follows explains this love. It comes out of this love. Okay, to continue my analogy, we could say that love is the cake. Okay, it's the caramel mud cake. That's my favorite. And what follows okay, are the required ingredients to produce it. Love is the familiar Greek term agape. It is selfless, self-giving self-sacrificial it is a willful devotion to another and it will be extended even if the recipient is undeserving okay this is the type of love that god bestows the greatest illustration of this love is the cross where jesus christ the son of god died to pay the price for our sin this is the greatest demonstration of love and I trust you have experienced that love. And as those who are loved by Jesus, by extension, we are called to love each other. And everything in our life flows out of that. Okay, we could say that love is the blood that pumps through the church's cardiovascular system. And hence, it's vital that we love each other. Our evangelistic effectiveness hinges on it. Do you remember what Jesus said? By this shall all men know, ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. It also proves that you love God. Okay, please understand that you don't love God if you don't love other Christians, especially those in your church. 1 John 4.20 says, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Okay, so it's vital that we're loving each other as we live this life together. This is what Jesus wants. This is what he demands from his church. But what does this love look like practically? What ingredients are needed to produce this gospel-driven love? That's the question that I like to consider. The first ingredient is authenticity. Verse 9 says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Now, nobody likes a fake. Imagine you are into collecting art and you always dreamt of owning a particular piece. It was incredibly expensive and you finally find it. 
It's in amazing condition and you're so thrilled. This will be the centerpiece of your collection. So you hand over the large check. It's a six-figure sum. You quickly call your insurance company to assess it. You want to insure this valuable piece. And it turns out it's a fake. That would be devastating. You know, as we live our lives together, we're in, we are called to love in an authentic way, not to fake it. The word dissimulation means hypocrite. And in Bible times, this spoke of an actor who would wear a mask okay, as a disguise in order to pretend to be someone else. And here the idea is that our love for others, it is to be real and sincere. So it's possible for us to pretend to love. You know, we can treat others well because we want to get something from them. Okay, we have ulterior motives. That's loving dissimulation. You know, we can dress up in the costume of love, but really it's a facade. We pretend to care, but really we don't. We only say something or do something because we realize that's socially expected or, or it's good for our image or some other crooked motive. You know, I think Judas Iscariot is the ultimate example. He pretended to be loyal to Jesus. He faked love and devotion all for his own selfish purposes. And this is not what we're to be like as we live our lives together. That there's to be a real and authentic love for one another. Okay? A love that is motivated by the good and advancements of the one loved. You know, this is the type of love that genuinely cares. That when it asks the question, how are you going? It means it and actually wants to know it's not a mere platitude. This love will sincerely sacrifice for the benefit of another, even at a great personal cost, and never expect anything in exchange. That is an authentic love. Now, verse 9 continues, and it gives us so two guardrails, if you like, to help us understand what real and authentic love is. And I'd like to add, this is very relevant in the times that we live, because there's much misunderstanding about love. And the following instructions are linked back to loving without dissimulation. They help us to understand authentic love. Okay, we see that it will abhor evil. This means to utterly detest, completely despise, to have horror over sin. So understand, love and sin are incompatible. Okay, real love is not blind like we're told. Love is discerning. And concerned about sin. Love does not tolerate wickedness. But it's willing to confront it and call it out. Okay? And any practice that God says is sin okay, is not love. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, okay, this is the great description of love. We're told that love rejoiceth not in iniquity. Okay, so please hear this because we're bombarded with the message that tells us love is all about tolerance and acceptance. But that's not authentic love. That's fake. And as we live this life together, okay, we are to abhor sin in our own lives. Okay, that's where it starts. But we will also confront sin in the lives of others. Okay, it, isn't it isn't loving to turn a blind eye to blatant iniquity. Real love will get beside someone. 
will speak to them graciously, will encourage repentance, and then help them to overcome it. But real love not only hates evil, it also cleaves to good. Cleave means to be glued or to fasten to something. It's actually used in 1 Corinthians 6 to describe a sexual union. Okay, so love will glue itself to good and right things. Be, be attracted to good. Okay, love sticks to good like metal does a magnet. It loves righteousness. It loves holiness. That, that is what authentic love looks like. Okay, it's compatible with good as revealed in the so this is the first ingredient, authenticity. You know, we need to be genuinely happy to see each other. That's authentic love. Truly care and be concerned. We need to encourage each other to do the right things and forsake the wrong things. We need to ask each other, how are you going? And actually mean it, even if it results in a very difficult conversation. This love makes time for others, is willing to be inconvenienced, is willing to sacrifice. These are all marks of authenticity. We need to ensure that we remove the masks and we're not being an actor, but love authentically. That's the first ingredient. The second ingredient is familial love. Verse 10 says, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Okay, Paul desires to make his point crystal clear. Okay, he makes this similar point twice, wants to make sure we don't miss it. Okay, the verb kindly affectionate, it's only used here in the New Testament, and it speaks of family love. Okay, the one that, sorry, the love that one has for their parents and that parents have for their children. So, so there's a reciprocal element, and this comes naturally. You know, I naturally love my children, they naturally love me. Paul also adds brotherly love. So again, this is a family love, the relationship between brothers and sisters. So here he uses two different words to emphasize the same point. Okay, we're to love each other in a similar way that we love our family. Okay, there's to be a family fondness and closeness, but we shouldn't be cold and standoffish and distant, but warm, welcoming and involved. That's what a healthy family looks like. You know, as Christians, there's a sense that we should love everybody. Okay, we're even told to love our enemies. But there's a closer and more intimate love that we should have for one another. Okay, there's a greater love that I have for my wife and my kids than I do for anyone else. And that idea transfers into the church family. There's to be this family warmth, tenderness, and closeness. Okay, we're to be like a family. So we're to be more than mere acquaintances that says hi on a Sunday morning. But we're called to be committed to each other. And one of the clearest evidences of, fa of a family environment is that we honor and prefer others. And what does this mean? Well, that is humbly putting others before ourselves. It's being diligent in bestowing honor. It's calling us to recognize, to praise, and to compliment each other. 
Okay? In the Greek phraseology, there's this sense of trying to outdo one another in bestowing honor. Okay? Not flattery, we know that's wrong, but we should be quick to acknowledge other people, acknowledge what they've achieved, praise them for a job well done, okay? thank them when they've helped you. And to have this particular attitude, we should focus on the good points of others and on our own bad points, rather than on my good points and the bad points of others. So the question is this, when somebody comes into our church, okay, do they think we treat each other like a family? Is that what it looks like or not? Okay, how are you treating others? Are you treating others warmly and tenderly? Are you getting closer to others and allowing people to get close to you just like a family? Are you honoring and preferring others? Are compliments and encouragement commonplace in our spiritual family? Are we a healthy family or a dysfunctional family? Okay, what are you contributing to the family? That's the second ingredient. The third ingredient is enthusiastic commitment. Verse 11 says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, are you the type of person or do you know such a person who is very enthusiastic to start a new project, but after a short period of time, that enthusiasm quickly disappears and there's incomplete projects everywhere. Have you ever experienced that? Okay, verse 11 is about enthusiasm. And this is an important ingredient in our lives together. Okay, the Greek word translated business is actually translated diligence in verse 8. And it's also translated earnest care in 2 Corinthians 8.16 and care in 2 Corinthians 7.12. So the idea expressed is being diligent in our care of others. We should not be slow or lazy in extending care, but rather we should be fervent. This speaks of zeal, of enthusiasm. We should have this inner burning passion to serve and care for others. You know, there needs to be an earnest desire to know about others. We ought to be swift to help each other. There should be an enthusiastic commitment to care. We should be quick to send that text, quick to send that email to see how somebody was going. When was the last time that you've done that? We need to be quick to talk to others. Oh, when we're at church, don't wait for people to come to you, seek others out. We need to be quick to check in with those who we know are sick or struggling. Send a message to someone who you haven't seen at church for a while. If there's a practical need, be quick to meet it. Okay, this is the type of culture in a healthy church, an enthusiastic commitment, a, a passion to ensure that others are loved and cared for and seeking to help in any way that we can. That's the heart attitude. Okay, and as we serve others, we're actually serving the Lord. So can you honestly say that you're passionate and enthusiastic about caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we quick to respond to the needs of others? Okay, are we 
passionate about being a blessing to someone else? Is that our mindset on Sunday? How can I be a blessing to someone today and actively seek that? Throughout the week, are we thinking, you know, who can I message? Who can I send an encouraging email to? Is there someone who needs practical help? This is an essential ingredient, an enthusiastic commitment to care for others. The fourth ingredient is perseverance. This is verse 12. Okay, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Now, as we do life together, we will be faced with trials and troubles, as will our brothers and sisters. Okay, the Christian life will not be an easy life. And it's important that we don't allow the tribulations and troubles of life to stop us from being loving and involved in the lives of others. Okay, this is my opinion as to why this verse is included in this context. Okay, it helps us to navigate difficulties personally. It also shows us how we can help others, but it reinforces that we can't neglect others even when times are tough for us personally you know it can be very easy when life is hard we're really struggling we just completely withdraw okay we withdraw from church life we have nothing to do with anyone we, we don't show love or we don't show care to anybody else we we feel like we've got nothing to give and we just become consumed with our own situation okay but you will find that it's very helpful even when you were struggling to continue investing in others Helping others, loving and caring for others. This helps you to not become, okay, woe is me and self-consumed. Now, three pieces of the puzzle of perseverance are listed in, these, in this verse. And these qualities will help us to love others even in hard times. And these are things that we need to share with others and do for others when they're struggling. Okay, we're told rejoicing in hope. This is having an eternal focus. Hope is a confident trust in things to come. My friend, God will keep his promises. He will reward faithfulness. Jesus Christ is coming again. Okay, we have so many great and glorious things awaiting us, and we need to grab hold of those things. Okay, grab hold and don't let go, just like we're in the ocean clinging to a life raft. And we need to remind one another of these realities, particularly those who are navigating a tough path, remembering that we comfort each other with such words. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, which follows after a coming of Christ passage. We also need to be patient in tribulation. Okay, the tribulations of life come in varying shapes and sizes. There are almost endless possibilities, and we are encouraged to be patient to endure, to press on. Okay, don't allow it to defeat us. Obviously, we, we need God's help. And often how God does that is by using one another. Okay, we need help from each other to bear the burdens of life. This is part of loving and caring. And we also need to continue in prayer. Okay, without praying for ourselves and without praying for others, joy and endurance won't be forthcoming. Okay, we need to be in prayer for ourselves. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray with each other. 
And this is especially the case when someone is enduring trials and tribulations. So as we do life together, we need a steadfast commitment to pray. Okay? And the wonderful thing about this is anyone can do it. Okay? Even the kids sitting in here this morning, this is something you can do to help your church. Pray. Pray. Okay? This is so important for all of us. So there's no excuse to not be involved in the lives of others. Your difficulties do not give you a leave pass. You're not permitted to ignore others and withdraw. But rather this verse shows you what you need to do. And you need other people reminding you of this and also helping you with this. Perseverance is a key ingredient. The fifth ingredient is generosity. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Have you ever been encouraged and uplifted because someone has given you a gift? You know, Emma and I have been incredibly blessed. Okay? We have been encouraged and strengthened. I don't know how many times because people have been so generous to us. You know, it started on our wedding day. On our wedding day, one of the pastors come up to us and said, oh, someone just paid for Emma's college fees for the whole year. We're like, oh, wonderful. Uh, we didn't have any money. We just got married. Praise the Lord. Just last Sunday, we received a gift that, that encouraged us. There's so many in between. Okay, we can encourage others by being generous. My friend, we are to express our love to one another through our wallets and our bank accounts. And this is what we need to understand when it comes to this topic. This is so important. Everything that we have belongs to God. You know, sometimes we can think, well, hey, you know, I, I've given my 10%. Or maybe I've given my 20% to church. That's God's money. And the rest is mine. I can do what I want. That's a false theology. Everything belongs to God. Well, whatever you have, he has given to you. He has entrusted it to you. You are a steward. And where to use it to bless others and further God's work. Okay, is, is that how you think? Okay, that, that's a biblical theology of money. Two specific things are laid out in this verse. Okay, we are to meet the needs of others. Okay, distributing to the necessity of saints. The word distributing, it's the Greek word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard of that before. It's often translated fellowship. It means to partner with or to become a sharer. And it speaks of a personal involvement. And we are to do this for the needs of others. Now it's true that our times are very different to Bible times. We have a wonderful social security system in Australia and, and so forth. So it is different. And yet we still ought to be willing to open our wallets to help others. Okay, why? Well... We serve a very generous God. We serve a God who has given us everything. Ought not we be generous as well? Now, when was the last time that you gave somebody some money to help them if you're able? When was the last time you brought something that someone needed? Gave of your time or abilities to help a particular need? Okay, how generous are you being in the Christian family? Hospitality is also mentioned. Now, when we see this word, we think of having meals with others and opening up our homes. And that's what 
The term is in its essence. You know, it's a willingness to open up your castle doors, let down the drawbridge so people can actually come in. In this day and age, we tend to want to have massive homes, massive fences, and don't have anyone in. It's very different today compared to most of history. Okay, but the particular Greek word, translated hospitality, it means to be a lover of strangers. So hospitality is not just having your friends in your home, okay, because the unsaved do that. Okay, but it's also having people who we don't know as well. And when Paul wrote, this was incredibly important. Hospitality was a key cog in the advancement of the early church. Because many preachers were traveling and they would lodge in people's homes. They depended on it. Paul knew about that firsthand. Furthermore, a lot of people would get saved and they'd get kicked out of their family home. Where do they go? Well, their fellow Christians invite them in. The early church didn't have buildings like we're blessed with. They normally meant in a home. Okay, so hospitality had an essential role in the advancement of the church. Now, unfortunately, this is happening less and less. Okay, today we are increasingly private people. But in the church family, we need to show hospitality. Open our homes, have meals with people, go out for a meal. My friend, understand this is vital in building and strengthening relationships. This probably helps more than just about anything else. Open your home, let people come in. If there's a new person at church, show hospitality. Okay, don't, don't ignore them. If there's somebody you don't know well, invite them over. Now, when was the last time that you did this? How often do you do this? And my friend, we need to be doing this. And I want you to notice the word given, given to hospitality. This means to pursue it, to chase it. It's a strenuous pursuit. So go after it, arrange it, make it happen. If you don't, it won't happen. Now, the early church in Acts, they were amazing in many ways. But one such way was how they looked after each other. They shared their possessions. They gave to the needy. They were generous. Okay, and this ingredient is vital. God has given us possessions so we can bless others. And may that be our mentality as we live this life together. The sixth ingredient is grace. Verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, family feuds are, are very tragic and yet extremely common. And even the best of families at times can have challenges and issues. And the spiritual family, our family, is no different. We can get hurt by others as we navigate this life together. We can say some horrible things. We can mistreat others. We can use others. We can clash with others. These are all unfortunate realities. And I believe it's this that verse 14 has in mind. Okay, this is an echo of Jesus' words. And it's true that this is how we are to treat our enemies. This is Paul's point in the closing section of this chapter. But this seems to be more focused within the family. Okay, when others do the wrong thing by us, we need to be willing to bless them and not curse them. Now, not instantly unload in heated retribution. That's our natural response, isn't it? Someone says something and we're like, how dare you? And we unleash a, a tirade. That's not the response that Jesus wants. But rather we're to be gracious. 
We're to be kind and even do good to those who mistreat us. Okay, we're told to bless them. What, what does that look like? Well, pray for them. Ask the Lord to grow your love for them. Look for practical ways to help them. Be deliberate in praising them. Be quick to forgive. And negatively, okay, don't jump into the putrid mud pit of revenge. Don't use the hideous weapons of ridicule, slander, or gossip. Now, this doesn't come naturally to us, does it? But it does flow out of the gospel. Because this is how Jesus has treated us. So as we do life together and people let us down, that they hurt us, we need to be gracious. We need to be willing to bless others even when they've cursed us. Okay, don't harbor resentment and bitterness because that will destroy you. It will tear you to pieces. Okay, and this is very destructive in the spiritual family. We're not to have hateful attitudes toward anybody, even those who cause us grief. The seventh ingredient is that we're to be considerate of others. Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. It has been said, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy that's shared is a joy made double. Okay, love identifies and sympathizes with both those who are rejoicing and those who are weeping. And it's God's desire that his children would be a family where the joys of one become the joys of all and the pain of one is shared by all. Okay, when somebody gets a new job, gets married, has a baby, buys a house or a car, a family member gets saved, that there has been some you know, great spiritual progress in their lives, an exam is passed, okay, we should be moved with joy for them. Okay, be happy, be thrilled for them, so send them a text or a card congratulating them. It's responding as if we were the one who received the good news. And we're to respond in such a way, even if someone gets what we wanted and we didn't get it. That's when it gets a little bit harder, isn't it? But to possess this attitude, we need to fight against envy and jealousy. Okay, envy and jealousy, that's the noxious weed that chokes out this glorious flower of rejoicing with others. You know, in our church family, people should feel comfortable to share their blessings and we should respond positively. We, we should share in that joy, smile and be joyful when somebody else is rejoicing. Likewise, when somebody is suffering, we should weep with them. Literally cry with them if that's appropriate. We should be moved by their plight. You know, not be in this hardened, calloused and unmoved state. We should be a shoulder for someone to cry on. Be there for them. Okay, simply be there. Spend time with them. Okay, don't let somebody weep alone. You know, as we live life together, love enters into the experiences and emotions of others. It shares in the laughter. It shares in the tears. It's sympathetic. It's compassionate. And even if we don't think it's that big of a deal, whether positive or whether negative, if it is for that person, we should be beside them. You know, the brother of the prodigal son was one who failed to rejoice with those who were rejoicing. May we not be like him. 
But then there was Jesus. He wept with Mary and Martha as they mourned the death of their brother. That's the right attitude. You know, may we not stand aloof of the joys and pains of others. May we be sure to share our joys and pains with others. Allow them to rejoice and weep with us. Okay, this is a vital ingredient of being involved and invested in the lives of others. Okay, when something happens to another, it's to be like it has happened to us. That's what the spiritual family is meant to be like. The joys of one become the joy of all, and the pain of one is shared by all. That is the seventh ingredient. And the eighth is impartiality. Verse 16 says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to man of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. You know, to phrase this in our vernacular, we're not to be snobby, exclusive, elitist, or clicky. I don't know if that's a word, and you know what I mean? Clicky in our spiritual family. That's the message of this verse. You know, we're to love and care for all. Okay, we're not to exclude others. You're not to have your, your little clique, your exclusive group, and then reject the rest. That is so wrong. Little group here. Little group there, and no new members are welcome. Okay, why, why is that wrong? Because it goes against the gospel. That, that's why it's a problem. Okay, we're not to exclude others because they don't meet up to our standards, or because they, they don't have the exact same interest as me, or they're on a different socioeconomic level, or they don't wear the right brand clothes, or, or whatever it may be. That's not to exist in the church. Because... We are all one and equal in Christ. Is that not what we believe? And hence that should be reflected in how we treat each other. Okay, we're not to only associate with a select few, but with all people. No matter their gender, age, status, occupation, or whatever other distinguishing mark. My friend, this is meant to set the church apart. Okay, it's here where we are meant to be different. Okay, very different people coming together and loving each other. Okay, old and young are meant to know each other and be investing in each other's lives. Rich and poor come together. White collar, blue collar are united. Different races who are naturally hostile, they are united. Because all barriers have been broken down by the gospel. Don't build them back up. Hence, where to show love and care for all. Okay, there isn't to be anybody who we have absolutely nothing to do with. Okay, you know, I, I refuse to have anything to do with that person. That is, that is so against the gospel. That, that goes against the unity that the New Testament treasures and that Jesus desires in his church. And you know, practically speaking, in a church our size... It's possible to know everybody reasonably well. Sure, you won't, you'll be closer to some, and that's fine. But there shouldn't be people who you don't know at all. There shouldn't be people who you refuse to talk to or you, know, you turn your nose up at. There shouldn't be people you ignore. My friend, these are cancerous attitudes that if left unchecked will destroy the body. These attitudes need to be cut out. 
by the scalpel of repentance. Love driven by the gospel includes everybody. So the Christian life is a corporate life. We we are to navigate this life with each other, be interested and invested to show love and care for one another. We are to be a family. And this is not just a Sunday commitment. It's a commitment for every day. Okay, you know what? We're to be involved in each other's life. Okay, this is the expectation of Jesus and the gospel. This is a healthy church. Okay, you can't be serious about the Bible, about the gospel, and about Jesus, and not be serious about being involved in the lives of others. My friend, understand it's incompatible to profess love for Jesus and not love for one another. And we have room to grow here as a church. We need to love each other more. We need to be more involved. We need to be more invested in each other's lives. We need more of a people focus. You know, as, as I'm saying all of this, there's a, there's a real danger right now that you agree with my assessment. You know, praise the Lord, Pastor, I agree with you. We, we need to grow when you start pointing the fingers at others. Brandon, you're not friendly. You know, John, you're not friendly, and so on and so forth. Okay, but here's the thing. It's very easy to criticize everyone else. But the point is, what, what, what are you doing? That, that's the question we need to ask. We, we need to look in the mirror. Okay, how, how am I going here? How, how can I love people better? What, what are some practical things that I can do right now? You know, write down one way that you can grow in all eight of these areas. And here's the thing, if we as individuals are committed to growing and developing, it changes the whole church culture. And for us to be doing life together, to be a gospel family that Jesus desires of his church, we need to be committed to one another. Okay, that starts with attendance. Okay, we need to be here as much as possible. Okay, how can you profess care and concern and not be here? Okay, you can't be committed and involved and absent. Okay, likewise, don't come to church as a mere spectator. Church isn't a spectator sport. Okay, and we can't grow in these areas if we talk to nobody at church. Okay, we come here, sit down, partake, and then leave. Okay, that's not going to work. But also, it doesn't stop on Sunday. It needs to continue throughout the week. Invested and involved in each other's life day to day. My friend, I'd like to encourage you. Write down some practical steps that with God's help you can take to grow and change. Okay, God doesn't want us to just come and listen to what's being said. He wants us to do. Okay, write down some things that you can grow in your love for others. Write down some ways that you can become more involved. Maybe, here's some suggestions. I'll try and help you. Maybe you need to be committed to send three text messages a week to somebody who you don't normally talk to. That's not too hard. Once or twice a month, have somebody into your home. Write write down a list of of everyone who comes to our church. If you want a list, send me an email. I'll send it to you. Pray through it every week. Be committed to talking to at least one new person every week. Okay, there's this person. I don't know them very well. Talk to them at church examine our prayer sheet and then contact those who are unwell 
Send the random encouraging text. Be, be determined to know others better. The possibilities are almost endless. And nobody should leave here today without something to do. Okay, without okay, being changed by the grace of God. Because here's the thing. It's impossible to estimate the potential of a church in which all the believers take seriously the instructions in this text. Okay, if we do that as a church, man, we'll, we'll change our community. If every church in Sydney does this, we'll change Sydney. We'll change New South Wales if we take these things seriously. You know, may we, with God's help, be committed to living our lives together as a family, loving and caring, being invested and connected because this is our reasonable service. Anything else is inconsistent with the gospel that we profess to believe and it's inconsistent with how Jesus has treated us. You know, may God help us to daily live this life together.